Hey everybody, welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. This week we are diving into two of the most beloved comedies, one from the 80s, one from the 90s. I'm here with my good friend D. Graves. You look a little stressed out, man. What's what's going on? I just, uh, I, I want to be a good man and thorough. Yeah. A good man and thorough, but there's a lot of strands to keep straight in old Duder's head, man. <laughs> I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm stressed out. I'm, I'm like, I'm like, there's this beautiful girl who takes my picture when I get arrested and I got this big crush on her and I just, I can't work up the right words to speak to her. You look way more stressed than high when he gets arrested <sighs> and uh, is getting his picture taken by Ed. Yeah. It's I'm, very undude of you to be so stressed out, man. Yeah. Mind if I do a J? (laughs) (laughs) I think to myself I might not take it anymore. Today we're diving into Raising Arizona versus The Big Lebowski. Two of the best from the Coen Brothers. Yeah, the Coen Brothers, I love their movies. I have not seen them all. I think every movie that I've seen of theirs, I loved it the first time that I watched it. I started with Raising Arizona. I know that I watched Barton Fink close to the time that it came out. I watched The Hudsucker Proxy close to the time that it came out. I had no idea that these guys were related, probably until I got to the Hudsucker Proxy, and I'm like, well, these are the same guys. And then, of course, Fargo came out, and that I was like, whoa, these are guys who've done something completely different. Now, I hadn't seen Blood Simple, which is kind of their tough horror-slash-thriller thing, but Fargo seemed far removed, and I totally bought it. Like, when they start Fargo with everything in here is true, I was like, oh, wow, okay. Yeah, no, so that turned out to be a total lie, but it was such a different experience. And so then by the time Big Lebowski rolls around in 1998, I mean, that's 11 years after Raising Arizona, I go and watch it. And by the way, this time in my life, I was doing Jay's pretty pretty frequently. (laughs) And I kind of had an idea about what it was about. And so when I went, I was definitely under the influence, right? I was feeling the vibes. I walked out of that movie, the first person that I talked to, first friend that I talked to about it, they were like, what'd you think? And I was like, I loved it, and now I have to see it not high to make sure that I really did love it. Right. I saw it again in the theater when I was living in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I was like, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen in my life. Really? Okay. These are two sort of off bullseye movies for me. Well, and you're not alone there. Like, both of the movies were not widely accepted when they first came out. I mean, there was kind of a, with Raising Arizona, the critics were expecting something different because the only experience they'd had was Blood Simple. And, I mean, you go from, you know thriller horror to basically a Looney Tunes episode. Right. And then with the Big Lebowski, kind of the same thing. They've just come off of Fargo, very deep, dark, grisly murder movie. And then you come in with the Big Lebowski and the the initial reaction from everybody but a handful of folks, including me, was meh. Right. Until a couple of years later. Yeah. And then somebody shows, you know, one of the film critics shows up at a midnight showing of The Big Lebowski like two years after it's come out. And it's developed like a Rocky Horror Picture Show style following. Like people show up, say the lines to each other. I'm, you know, we use the word cult following all the time. This is genuinely a cult. And so I'm not a member of that cult. I'm going to be... Right. There's going to be no information for me as far as those cultish things go, but I am a lover of the movies. And so the the beginning was sincere. I am stressed to the max, but I've decided 
I'm just going to chill. I'm just going to, you know, the dude abides. <laughs> just take a look at the rug, man, and just realize that, you know, it all pulls the episode together. Right. You know? Really ties the episode hey, together. Hey, you mentioned something I wanted to touch on before yeah. we, we got off of that. My understanding is that one of the Cohen brothers went to the movie one day and there's a big line of people and he's like, what's going on here? They were like in costumes and stuff and she's like, oh, we're all dressed up for this great movie called The Big Lebowski. It's a lot of fun. You should come. You'd probably like it. To the Coen brothers! To the, yeah, to, yeah, to Joel. Yeah, so. that's hilarious. Well, before we get fully rolling in the episode, there's a couple people we need to talk about. Yes, absolutely. So last week we dropped our top five songs of 1988. Yes. And we've got all kinds of feedback on that. Most of it positive. A lot of people disagreed and wanted to plug with their own songs. And that's great. We, we encourage that conversation. We, we love it. But I'll tell you, one stood out to me. Okay. Yeah. We got an email from a woman named Beth Sloan. Okay. That we hadn't really interacted with. I think she'd hit us up on Facebook a couple of times, but okay. nothing really, really personal. Uh-huh. And she took issue with the fact that I called Father Figure a giant panty dropper, okay? Oh, yeah. Well, you you kind of went over, the, you, you gushed on that. It was the girls are chasing after you, throwing their panties as you have the, car, the music playing <laughs> from your car. <laughs> that's, that's right. She said it was gross. Well, she wasn't real comfortable with the lyrics of, you know, (laughs) call me your daddy and all this other stuff. I think she used the word ew. Yeah. But here's what she said. Okay. So she didn't just trash my list. Yeah. She said, guys, here are the top five panty droppers of 1988. So not just the top five songs, but the top five panty droppers. Panty droppers of 88. And when a woman tells you this is the top five panty droppers. You probably should listen. You listen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what so, is it? I'm dying. Okay. I'm on the edge so of my here seat. it is. All right. You Stop ready? All this build up and tell me what she said. Okay. So according to our new best friend, Beth Sloan. Yeah. This is what she says. Number five, Hands to Heaven by Brie. It's a good one. That, dude, that's that was on my slow list. dancing. That was on my uh, list. Yeah. For sure. 88. Okay. Number four, she says Eternal Flame by the Bangles. Well, sure. She's Anna Hoffs. I mean, you say no more. Oh my gosh. I don't, those are, you know, boxer droppers, I think. <laughs> we love Susanna Hoffs here at the Shirley Can't Be Serious yeah. podcast. Number three, she said The Flame by Cheap Trick. Okay. That was my first out. Okay. And we had talked about that. I think Brad Moore, that was one on his list. So we are totally with you on The Flame by Cheap Trick. And number two, she's got I'll Be There For You by Bon Jovi. Sure. New Jersey. Yeah. Can't beat it. I'm not going to split hairs with her, but I, I, that's definitely an 89 song for me. That's like summer 89. Yeah. Okay. And then number one, her top penny dropper of 1988. Yeah. I Want Your Sex by George Michael. What? <laughs> so she she thrashed you for picking Father Figure, but her number one is I Want Your Sex. Hey, I don't, I don't care. That, yeah, that, that's that, a good answer. That's a good that's answer. still a good answer. That's She's a song. Right. She's right and you're wrong, but yes, that's great. <laughs> yeah. That, I believe when we did the uh, George Michael episode, we called that, uh, that song sounds like uh, wet pornography. Yeah. So... <laughs> yeah. Yes, I so, remember having to edit that one special. <laughs> Beth, that was amazing. She's actually Chris Weber's cousin. Oh, well, cool. And and Chris had turned her on to us. So Chris, thank you. Beth, thank you. Thanks for reaching out. Good to hear from both of you guys. Yeah. On our top five of eighty-eight. If you missed that, go back and check it out. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man.
Okay, so for this episode, we've got a new Patreon member that is our executive producer of our Coen Brothers episodes. This guy joined our YouTube page. If you haven't done that, go do that. We don't put out a whole lot of YouTube stuff, but when we do, it's it's gold. Yeah, Ch- you can check out Jason going to all of the locations for Rumblefish and the Outsiders. That was that was a lot of fun, right? It was, yeah. And then he joined Patreon. I know. So you you texted me this morning. Yeah. And you're like, hey, we got a new Patreon. I'm like, awesome. Who is it? You're like, well, this guy named Cason Grover. I'm like, Cason Grover? Went to high school with Cason Grover. Oh, there you go. So, Cason, thank you very much, buddy. We appreciate you. Uh, I'm so glad. I didn't even know he listened. It's so good to hear from you and appreciate your support. And uh, Cason and I have been friends for decades. Wow. That's awesome. So, thank you, Cason. Yep. Appreciate your support, guys. If you want to help support the podcast and listen to all our super special top hits, frequently one-hit wonders of the 80s and 90s, go to patreon.com backsplash. Do that again. Every time. (laughs) Backslash Shirley Podcast, and you can join for as little as five bucks a month. Okay, are you ready to jump into the Coen Brothers? Okay, then. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you said it. I there are so many quotes in these two movies, and some of them overlap like that. Okay, then. Right. These are both movies that we routinely quote in my house. I cannot tell you how many times I say, "If you're not into the whole brevity thing, or phones ringing, dude, or okay, then." Uh-huh. One of the things I quote around my wife all the time is just I, I do the. Uh, T-I-G-E-R. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Mind you don't cut yourself, Mordecai. <laughs> Take these huggies and whatever. I can't. Yes, college friends, if they're listening right now, they're going to they're gonna be waiting with for me to say this right now. Yeah. You got the balloons that come in the funny shapes? Not less rounds, funny. <laughs> <laughs> My buddy Bomber, who's a Patreon member, Chris Bauer, we used to he used to get me in trouble in church all the time. He'd crack me up in Sunday school and stuff. But he'd always be quoting that uh, 719, 720. <laughs> ah, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a hard time quoting the Big Lebowski without dropping the F-bomb. Okay, listen to this. Before we get started. You got a statistic, don't you? I do, I do. Huh. We have 147 mans. Okay. We have 161 dudes. Yeah. We have 292 F-bombs. 292. 292. The dude is said about half as much as the F-bomb. Yes. Okay. Yes. And we have five shut the F-ups. Donnie. Donnie. (laughs) (laughs) You're like a little child who wanders into a movie. (laughs) What's a better ass? Shut the F up, Donnie. Okay, so I'm going to give a little history here. A little history. A little history. Just a little. I can't, I just, I cannot, I could spend years like sinking into these movies and devouring what they are. And I can tell you that there are a ton of people who have analyzed these movies and said, oh, this is about the Reagan era and the economics and uh, the relationship between the rich and the poor and all this other stuff. And I can also tell you that the Coen brothers basically turn their noses up at everybody who does that. So I'm not about to start doing it. I'm not going to try to do it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you about the cool things that I like that they do. And I'm going to, I'm going to abide. Okay, so Joel Cohen, born November 1954. Ethan Cohen, born September 1957. First, let me just say this. Their paternal grandfather was Victor Cohen and a barrister of the Inns of Court in London before he retired to Hove with their grandmother. But that's the only kind of old-time information I'm going to give you on that. 
All right. Okay. Okay. I am not leading all the way up. So they're born in the fifties. They grow up and their movie experience stems largely from the movies that come on late at night in the sixties. And you'll find with those movies, the later you get, the kind of weirder you get. And a lot of the movies that were, that they were watching are the old black and white private detective movies that were movies based on Raymond Chandler or Dashiell Hammett or these other kind of pulpy mystery writer guys. Right. Now, I didn't mention where they were born. They were born in a small town just outside of Minneapolis named St. Louis Park. Okay. You familiar with another park in Minneapolis? How about Paisley Park? Yes. Prince... Paisley Park, yes. which is not, again, suburb of Minneapolis, right? Right, right, right. And it uh, turns out that they got together later on. They said, hey, we like your stuff. He goes, hey, I like your stuff. They said, maybe you should be in our movie. He said, that sounds great. And so if you look at the closing credits of Fargo, yeah, you will see next to the character name Victim in Field, not... Prince Rogers Nelson, because he wasn't going by that. At that time, <laughs> right. You will see the sign of the artist formerly known as Prince. I don't even think he was actually in the movie. Like, I don't think they could make their schedules work, but they thought, well, we'll just give him credit anyway. That's cool. And so you, if you'll watch the scrolling credits of Fargo, you will see the sign <laughs> of the artist formerly known as Prince. Back when he was going by the symbol. Exactly. Okay. So in addition to those detective movies that they were watching on late night TV, they also saw Fellini stuff. They saw Son of Hercules. They saw Tarzan films, Jerry Lewis, Bob Hope, Doris Day. And you can see from just that little bit, there's a wide spectrum of influences that are coming into play once they start making movies. So in the mid-60s, Joel saves his money from mowing lawns and buys a Super 8 camera, and they started remaking movies with their friend Mark Zimmering, who they called Zimers, as the star, okay? All right, all right. They they remade a 65 movie called The Naked Prey and called it Zimers and Zambezi. They remade the 1943 Lassie Come Home, and they called it Ed, a dog, and Ethan played the mother role and his sister's tutu. This, I mean, this sounds like the same stuff we used to do with the, our parents' cameras when we were kids, you know? 100%. Just I had make a VHS dumb movies. Yeah. and we would make dumb movies. I, I had a stop animation with all of my He-Man figures as nice. they attacked the castle of Grayskull. So after they get done with high school, they go to a local college for a little bit together, and then Joel goes to NYU and starts studying film. He then goes, after he graduates, he goes down down to University of Texas in Austin, but going down there because he was following a woman he had married who was going down there for linguistic studies and that marriage didn't last. And so he dropped out once he was divorced from her. Ethan, instead of going to NYU, he went to Princeton University, got an undergraduate degree in philosophy in 1979. Okay. And his senior thesis was a 41-page essay on the two views of Wittgenstein's later philosophy. Wittgenstein is considered the greatest philosopher of the 20th century. Okay. Fascinating stuff, right? All right. I, I, got, you, I got you enthralled, I can tell. <laughs> right? No, I'm with you. Okay. So after Joel gets done with NYU and his brief stint at the University of Texas, he goes and starts working as a production assistant. And he works on a whole bunch of industrial films and music videos. And then he has a very special movie that he works on where he makes a very important friend. 
And that movie is a movie that my friends have asked us to cover, and that movie is The Evil Dead by Sam Raimi. Yeah, okay. So he and Sam Raimi hit it off. He is the he is the associate uh, or assistant editor in Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead. Sam Raimi talks to them about some of their stuff. They've started working on a script together for Blood Simple, and he says, you guys have got to get this thing made. He starts introducing them to people, and they shoot a brief kind of teaser pitch thing with a guy crawling along on the highway. The guy is Bruce Campbell, the star of Evil Evil Dead. Dead, Uh And so they start going door-to-door showing this to people, and they build a budget for their first movie by talking to dentists. For some reason, dentists always seem to be the guys that are investing in movies, right? Dentists have a lot of money, and they're always bored. Yeah, right. I've got, I have to be a dentist every day. <laughs> How about I get to be the producer of a Hollywood movie, That's right? right. That's right. So they get that. They get the guy who invented the pump for Windex. He donates some money to it. Wow. Sam Raimi's dad donates some money. They just they get all of this money together, basically get, I think, something like $750,000 together and decide to make their movie called Blood Simple. Hey, you know, you mentioned the name Sam Raimi. Yeah. And I've got a list of people who call The Big Lebowski one of their all-time favorite movies, okay? Yeah. And this includes people like Jennifer Lawrence, Seth Rogen, Jonah Hill, and one of those people is Sam Raimi. Yeah. I didn't know they were friends, though. Yeah, yeah. You know? So Sam, I mean, the first Evil Dead was a struggle for Sam. I mean, he ran out of money in the midst of production Bruce Campbell gives him his own money so that he can finish production. And so that's why Bruce Campbell is in every single one of Sam Raimi's films, just about. is Because, I mean, this is the guy that saved his very first movie, right? Right. And so anyway, yes, they've made this special meeting with Sam Raimi, who's now influencing their movie career. He ends up being, he's got cameos. I think he's got a cameo in a couple of their movies. One of them is Miller's Crossing. I think he's got a kind of good shootout scene in Miller's crossing okay but anyway blood simple the girl that they want to play the kind of key part in blood simple we all know holly hunter you son of a bitch! better hurry it up i'm in dutch with the wife yes but she wasn't available so she says hey how about you use my roommate people say we're a lot alike the roommate francis mcdormand <laughs> that's crazy right they're roommates yeah which you know part of the reason why they have such great chemistry in Raisin, Arizona is because they know each other. Exactly. By the way, just to comment on that, Holly Hunter does give an uncredited voiceover for Blood Simple. Oh, really? Yeah, she does. So the other very important person that they meet when they make Blood Simple is this guy named Jeff Dowd. So they produce Blood Simple. They write and direct it. They For a long time, just one would get the writing credit and the other would get the directing credit, I think until like, oh, Brother, Where Art, that was finally the first one where they finally got to get double billing as directors. But they always work in conjunction, both writing and directing and producing. And so they make Blood Simple, and with that very first movie, you get their genre twists where they're taking things that don't seem to belong together and smashing them together like horror and film noir and they put in a simple story but they've got crazy plot twists and then the fancy you know film school word mezzanine where they've got special set decoration with special blocking of the actors to create this real picture because the thing is they won't explain their films right, right. I, that's what i was 
consumed by like understanding the depth of these movies, but they won't talk about them in that way. They'll talk about what inspired them to write the movie, but they won't say what it means. Right. And that's kind of the point. They want you to get your own meaning from it. They want you to just sit there and enjoy the movie, but also leave it broad enough and vague enough that you draw your own conclusions. Their real key to their success is the art that they create. The combination of lighting, cinematography, the beauty of the pictures that they shoot, the creativity of the language that they use, and the combination of these weird styles that no one would expect to come together is really what makes a Coen Brothers movie a Coen Brothers movie. That and usually somebody sitting behind a desk. Okay. So I'm saying that to say I'm not going to try to figure out what Raising Arizona means. I'm not going to try to figure out what The Big Lebowski means. I'm just going to talk about how much I love watching them. Okay. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. So they have great success with Blood Simple. It gets awards at the Sundance Film Festival and the Independent Spirit Awards. And the next project they have is with Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi is directing a script that they write, and that one was called Crime Wave. And that is a lesson on how other people should not direct scripts that the Coen brothers write. Really? Okay. Because it was too weird. Like Sam Raimi is a great director, but he didn't get their feel right. It was just too weird. But Sam Raimi and Joel, that next year in 1985, they have a cameo in a movie. Okay. And you know this movie. Okay. Wearing machine guns and they're dressed in suits. Okay. Suits? In suits. Like business suits? Yep. And the guy who is on screen with them as they're guarding a drive-in movie is B.B. King. And he suggests to Dan Aykroyd and Chevy Chase that they go in and (laughs) have a Pepsi Cola. Have a Pepsi. Spies Like Us. You got it. It's Spies Like Us. Yeah. So Spies Like Us, you've got a cameo by Sam Raimi and Joel Cohen before they were ever big. Yes. Okay. That's cool. That's a great little nugget. Thanks. Okay. So then, two years later, they do their second movie, the movie that we're here to talk about today, Raising Arizona. Hey, I'll tell you, the first time I watched this movie, a couple of guys went over to a friend's house after football practice. Uh Uh-huh. We did the classic, you know, swing by Blockbuster, grab a couple of movies and some, you know, popcorn or whatever. Went over to a guy's house and we laughed our rears off at this movie. So right from the get-go, I thought this was a hilarious movie. Yeah. Now it was odd. Yeah. It was odd, but man, it was funny. Well, it is completely in your wheelhouse because we talked about them mixing up some kind of weird combination. How about a kidnapping movie that's combined <laughs> with Looney Tunes style Absolutely, comedy Absolutely, right? Absolutely. And how different of a movie to do right after you've done Blood Simple. I mean, it's just they're night and day different, which turned off a lot of critics. They're not expecting it. But I'm with you. First time I saw it, I was like, this movie's fantastic, hilarious. I was eating up the dialogue that they exchanged because it's so crazy the way that they write. I mean, these buffoon kind of, you know, trailer trash characters speaking in this way. And what they did was they combined the style of writing that they found in magazines of the time with the Bible. I know. That was, right? that was with the two things they slammed together to write this script. It's crazy. And, you know, after watching Raised in Arizona, 
it took me a while to allow Nicolas Cage to be a movie star, action hero, A-list actor because I'd seen him be a complete goofball, weirdo, trailer trash guy yeah. in Raising Arizona. Yeah, and we know from even from when we talked about his first really big movie, Rumblefish. Rumblefish. Yeah. He likes to improv things and he likes to put his own spin on things. And Joel and Ethan are meticulous about how they write scripts. And so even though they had mutual respect for each other, their ways of doing things did not line up, which is why this is the only Coen Brothers movie that he is in. Yeah, I, I read a little bit about that. And they did allow him to improv. Yeah. And then they just cut most of it out. <laughs> sure, go ahead, Nick. Do whatever you want. Yeah. You you can tell the true Nicolas Cage moment when he falls over being tied to the chair, his head slams on a cheese ball, <laughs> and he just starts screaming his head off. You know, there's so many funny parts of this movie. When he gets in a fight inside the confined spaces of the mobile home, and he raises his hands to like do an overhead karate chop punch, Yes, and he scrapes his fingers on the, uh, on the bubbled ceiling. Yes. And he's like, ah! I mean, it's such a cartoon. And if you get it wrong just a little bit, yeah, the whole thing goes in the tank. You can just take the movie and throw it in the trash. Right. A la Last Action Hero. Okay. They tried to make it a satire, kind of funny, kind of poke fun, and it didn't work, and the whole movie is trash. Yep. And instead, they hit it right on the nose, and it's it's hilarious. Right. So in addition to People Magazine and the Bible, they had influence <laughs> of a film director named Preston Sturgis. And I sent you this. I think this is probably their favorite film director in his style. You can definitely see how they've drawn their influence because his is all about that dialogue. The story is secondary to that fast-paced, kind of cutty, fun speaking that all of these characters have. And then the in addition to the crazy things that they say, the characters themselves are bigger than life, right? I mean, you just you think about the brothers, John Goodman and William Forsyth, and the goofball nature that they have and still their kind of educated way of speaking. It is perfect. It's it, poetic. It's also. surprising and it's wonderful to watch. And if you've got the right actors doing the job, you don't have to work too hard at it. So in addition to Preston Sturgis in that style, they also had William Faulkner. They had Flannery O'Connor, who's one of my favorite authors. She's Southern style author. They took influence from her. They put their script together and they showed it to the film company and they said, this is our complete opposite movie of Blood Simple and the company named Circle Films agreed to finance the movies. Hey, before you leave that, I called you the other day and I told you that their style reminds me of Elmore Leonard, who is Southern yeah. and dialogue-based. Yep. There's a sort of rhythm to their speaking. Yep. So think justified, right? It's all about edgy dialogue and unusual characters like a, a drug dealer or a marijuana grower or Texas Ranger and all that stuff. We're asked in Raising Arizona to cheer for kidnappers. Yeah. You know, trailer trash kidnappers. Kidnapping babies. Kidnapping babies. Yeah. They got more than they can handle, hi. Huh? By the way, D, while you are uh, gathering your thoughts there, David Wright and Van Allen Plexico about a podcast that we're going to be recording with them tomorrow. Huh? On Ready Player One, the movie. Yeah, if you haven't caught the Ready Player One, the book that we did with Van Allen Plexico and David Wright last week, go check it out. It's on the White Rocket podcast with Van Allen Plexico. That's right, and the sequel coming this coming week. Okay, I'm going to jump back to what I said before. Okay. I mentioned that they had 
met a guy who's helping produce this movie whose name was Jeff Dowd, right? The Dowder. The yeah. Dowder. El Dowderino, if you're not in the whole brevity <laughs> thing. So Jeff Dowd had a definite way about him. He was a part of a group. The Seattle Seven. He was part of the Seattle Seven. That was a real group. It's funny. You never know with Coen Brothers movies when they bring stuff up, whether this is going to be a real thing right. or just they've made something up. So when the dude says he's... He was a part of the Seattle Seven, you know, me and six other guys. <laughs> he That was a real thing, right? So they meet Jeff Dowd, and they they love this kind of kooky guy that smokes pot and has his beer belly. Now, the guy that they have who is the cinematographer for Raising Arizona is a guy that you probably heard of named Barry Sonnefeld. Yeah, that's right. Do you know why you've heard of him? I mean, he did. He's been a director for other famous movies. Men in Black. Yes. That's kind of a big one. Big, men in Blacks, all of them. Uh-huh. He also did Get Shorty. I mean, he... Get Shorty, Elmore Leonard. Yeah. There you go, right? Yeah. Before that, he was a cinematographer also for Big, which we've got coming up pretty soon. We do. Um, so that'll be Very fun. soon. Very soon, yes. He introduces them to this guy named Peter Xline. Peter Xline is a vet. I know where you're going. It's not the, not the Walter character yet, all right? Yeah. But he's a guy who is retired, and he lives in a ratty apartment, and he has this rug that really ties the room together. <laughs> so Peter Xline, he introduces them to his friend named Louis Abernathy. Louis Abernathy is also a vet. Uh-huh. And Louis Abernathy is into guns. He's a private investigator. And one time, Louis helped Peter track down a high school kid who stole his car (laughs) because when they found the car, Louis Abernathy found the homework in the seats. That is unbelievable. That made it all the way to the big screen of Big Lebowski. It was hilarious. Yes. It's crazy to think that these are real events that actually happened. So, obviously, Louis Abernathy is a key inspiration for the Walter character. Jeff Dowd is a key inspiration for the dude, as is Peter Xline. And in this process, they also meet John Milius. John Milius, the director of Conan the Barbarian. John Milius, the writer of Apocalypse Now. John Milius' close associations with... Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas, but a different cat altogether. And if you haven't seen John Milius, you go take a look at his picture and you're going to immediately think of Walter. That's exactly right. I mean, he also worked on Dirty Harry and Jaws. Yes. This guy's a heavy hitter from Hollywood. Absolutely. But he's uh, one of these sort of kooky, right-wing, military, lots of guns. He got hired to write a script, uh, you know, that we want you to stay in this place and write a script. And his requirement was that there were babes, beer, and motorcycle (laughs) as much as he wanted. And that was was how he wrote the script, right? So the first movie that John Milius directed was this movie called Big Wednesday. Okay. Okay. It's a surfer movie. Uh, Jan Michael Vincent, I believe, is the kind of key guy. The world's greatest athlete, Jan Michael Vincent. You got it. You got it. Um, So Jan Michael Vincent's character was based on this guy named Jim Ganser, and John Milius introduces the Coens to Jim Ganser, and Jim Ganser's name, nobody calls him Jim Ganser, they call him the dude. Wait, wait, let me me explain something to you. I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. 
So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. <laughs> this is great. This is a hodgepodge of real people. They pull together and it all lands in this movie. Exactly. After raising Arizona, they had gone on and done Miller's Crossing in 1990. And that's a gangster flick. I haven't seen it, but it's supposed to be very good. It came out the same day as Goodfellas, which, you know, it's hard to have another gangster movie out Mm -hmm. the same day as Goodfellas. But I'm sure that this one holds its own in an entirely different way. Then they do Barton Fink, which is not terribly successful either. The Hudsucker Proxy, which does even worse. Both of those movies I absolutely love. And they, they want have to- terrible names. That's the big thing. Yeah, maybe. I yes. did. I saw Madonna on the Arsenio Hall show talk about how much she enjoyed the movie Barton Fink. Wow. Pulling that right out of the 90s. <laughs> That's awesome. And then, of course, Tim Robbins is in The Hudsucker Proxy. Both of those movies went completely under my radar in the 90s just because I that title didn't captivate me. So I am telling you and all of the Shirley fans out there, the Hudsucker Proxy is worth the watch. It is great fun. I mean, if you like Raising Arizona, this is a movie to watch. It is full Looney Tunes style fun. Okay. It is great. It By is the great. way, yeah. you know what company H.I. McDonough works for in Raising Arizona? Hudsucker Industries. There you go. They have this own little universe that everything lives in. Yeah, and they also have like a go-to cast that they always use. You've got Frances McDormand, which is she's been in... Virtually everything that they've done, you, right? You know why? Well, she she and Joel got married. They got married. Yes. I mean, yeah. That helps, you yeah. know. Yeah. So she's in Raising Arizona. You got Steve Buscemi, who's in Big Lebowski. You've got John Goodman, who's in both. You've got John Polito, who's in Big Lebowski. You've got John Turturro, who's in Big Lebowski. These guys are in so many of their movies. And they also have go-to crews, right? They've got Sir yeah. Roger Deakins. I mean, he is... The man, he's the godfather of cinematography and probably wouldn't be there had it not been for his work with the Coen brothers. Wow. Okay, so also in that time, in between Raising Arizona and The Big Lebowski, they see this play called Mi Puta Vid. Okay. Where they see a guy named John Turturro, who's playing a Hispanic character, who is sort of a pederast. <laughs> What's a pederast? Shut the... Jason. <laughs> John Tutoro, who goes on to star as Jesus. Nobody F's with the Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody F's with the Jesus. Jesus Rolls was a movie that came out later that was not directed by the Coen brothers and which failed miserably. I didn't even know that thing was yeah. a thing. You I know? was excited about it, and then it was like, oh, no, this is an absolute train wreck. Oh. So, Hey, you know what, though? He was in The Batman and we yeah. loved him in yeah. the Batman. He did great. He was he was great. He's I really I don't know that I've seen him in stuff that I don't like him in. I just haven't seen that Jesus Rolls movie. But talk about one of the best character introductions in all of TV and movie history. I mean, the Gypsy Kings playing their version of Hotel California <laughs> and his his one painted coke nail on his pinky with all those rings and the pink unitard bowling suit and the hairnet and the licking of the ball. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, it is art. You know, they, amazing. they gave him plenty of space to do what he does. Yeah. And I, it was John Turturro's idea to lick the ball and to, you know, he put a sack of birdseed in his pants. When he had to go door to door <laughs> telling people he was a pederast. Yes. And he just was over the top. 
he said when he watched it later, yeah. he was embarrassed. Oh, no. He's like, ah, I don't oh, know. it's fantastic. But, yeah, it's... Absolutely uh, fantastic. He, he created a character that's very memorable. In- indeed. Okay, so they've done Fargo, and it blows up. I mean, Fargo, Francis McDormand wins the Oscar. It gets all kinds of Oscar nominations. They are They have moved from you know, movies that don't make back their budgets into this massive hit. And that brings us to them writing the movie that falls around all of these crazy stories that they've heard from these guys that they've met in their time in the movie business. And they, they decide to take it and write it in a Raymond Chandler style, episodic private Dick style kidnap adventure. Yeah. The plot on this is a little bit fuzzy. Yeah. And I had to write it down. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's 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 a little bit weird. It just kind of yeah. whines. Yeah, and even the Cohen brothers has said, "Man, eh, the plot's really not that important. It's just hanging out with these characters." Yeah, and it's and they are right. They are right. Like after my first probably two or three viewings, I probably couldn't have told you exactly what happens in the movie, other than there's this really cool guy who's laid back, right, right. who gets involved with this weird kidnapping for this trophy wife. I I had to call you, and I'm like, okay, so is. Am I understanding this right? Is this what actually happened? You're like, yeah, that's what happened. So, yeah. So this was only my second time to see this movie. Oh, nice. So, but it was hilarious. I laughed my butt off. Right. Awesome. Well, what do you think? Let's talk about casting. Let's jump back to Raising Arizona and talk about casting. already talked a little bit about it we got Nicolas Cage was he first choice for H.I. McDonough well he won the audition okay but you know Kevin Costner auditioned for this three times wow he almost got the part could you see that well this is 87 I mean that was this is pre-untouchables wow okay so Kevin Costner had been in Fandango but he was an Mm up-and-comer but this is pre-Bull Durham this is pre-Field of Dreams this is pre- Untouchables. Wow. Okay. So Kevin Costner nice. auditioned three times and almost got this part. Nice. We should go ahead and mention Raisin Arizona released on March 13th, 1987. Okay. On a budget of a little over five million bucks. Yeah. That is super tight. Yep. They had they said they had to have it very well organized before they started production because the budget was so tight. Yes. Wake up, son. I'll be taking these huggies and uh, whatever cash you got. Okay, here I'm gonna throw. I'm gonna blow your mind on this one. You okay, ready for yeah, this? I'm ready to go. You know who else auditioned for the role of H.I.? No. Richard Jenkins. Does that name ring a bell with you? Yes, Richard Jenkins. Oh man, I saw it and I can't bring it. I can't find him in the mental mansion. Tell me who he is. Richard Jenkins is the dad in Step Brothers. Yes. The guy yes. who's like, you crash my boat, you goons. Yeah. See, he's another he's another standard Coen Brothers go-to guy. That's right. Yep. How about that? Nice. That's a good one. Okay. This was mind-blowing to me. Okay. Do you know who auditioned and turned down the role for Edwina? <laughs> I love him so much. Miss Willie Scott, Kate Capshaw herself, turned down this role. Wow. Okay. 
and let's see, that was eighty-seven. That would have been that would have been post Temple of Doom. Yeah, that yeah. Been post Temple of Doom. Yeah. Well, I mean, she's hooking up with Steven Spielberg at that point. She I, doesn't need the work. She doesn't need the work. You know what other role she turned down that was like no. could have been huge for her? No. Diane Chambers in Cheers. Oh wow. She turned down that role. Interesting. Okay. Good. Kate Good Nuggets. Capshaw. Nice. Okay. She also auditioned for some roles in The Outsiders, which we talked about at the time. Yeah. Okay. So some other people in Raisin Arizona. We talked a little bit about John Goodman. Yeah. He's in Coen Brothers movie after Coen Brothers movie after Coen Brothers movie. Yes. You know what they call that? Recidivism. <laughs> <laughs> they got a name for people like you, hi. That name is called recidivism. Repeat offender. Not a pretty name, is it, hi? No, sir. That's one bonehead name, but that ain't me anymore. You're not just telling us what we want to hear. No, sir, no way. Because we just want to hear the truth. Well, then I guess I am telling you what you want to hear. Boy, didn't we just tell you not to do that? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes. I think he got the part in Roseanne mm -hmm. right around this same time. Okay. I mean, that's on his way to superstardom, right? I, he'd, right. He had played the coach in Revenge of the Nerds, you know? Oh, wow. So that. Okay, good one. You guys lost to a bunch of GD nerds. <laughs> nerds! Yeah, nice. You just got your asses whipped by a bunch of goddamn nerds. Nerds! All right, then you mentioned William Forsyth. Yep. I mean, he goes on, he, he plays like a baddie yeah. in like Steven Seagal movies and stuff. He's so much better as the goofball. I like him so much better as the goofball than as the bad guy. I guess probably because that's where I saw him first was that. <laughs> right, right. He was in Cloak and Dagger, the movie Cloak and Dagger. Was he? Yes. He was like the computer guy that Henry Thomas brings his wow. disc to for him to check it out. It's been a few decades since I've seen Cloak, Cloak and Dagger. Cloak and Dagger. Was check it out. Childhood favorite of mine. Mine too. Okay. You also have Sam McMurray who plays Glenn. Yep, he's also in Christmas Vacation, which we covered a couple Christmases ago. That or last Christmas is he in Christmas Vacation? Yeah, he's the co-worker of Chevy Chase. That's right, he is. Okay, so anyway, he plays Glenn <laughs> because that's a way Homer. Does <laughs> Pope wear a funny hat? Yes, it is kind of funny, Glenn. <laughs> <laughs> this character is hilarious. And then, of course, you got Francis McDermott. I want to mention M. Emmett. Walsh, the guy from The Jerk. He's been in a million different movies. He's kind of a that guy. He was a go-to for them. He was the kind of he was a key character in Blood Simple. Okay. Interesting. He was in Blade Runner, which we talked about early in 2022. Yep. He is the guy who I quote routinely when I say, No, not that mother scratcher. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and we would be remiss if we did not talk about the great Randall Tex. Cobb as Leonard Smalls. Lenny Smalls. Lenny Smalls. Name right out of John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. They said Tex Cobb was a little tough to work with. He's more like a, instead of an actor, he's more like a force of nature. Don't think they will be hiring him again is what, what they said back then. Obviously, he's passed away since then. He was in Uncommon Valor, right? He with was in Gene Uncommon Hackman? Valor, yes. Yeah. He was in Fletch Lives. Oh, wow. Okay. He's got a very unique face. And I think they must have done something with his nose in this particular movie because it was even bigger. They, they said he was part bloodhound, but yeah. He was a heavyweight contender. Yeah. This guy is a... Badass. Yes, he is. You don't remember when Fletch lives when he when Chevy Chase gets thrown in jail and he says, bend over. 
Chevy's like, Ben, good to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't. And then finally, TJ Kuhn is one of the many children who played Nathan Jr., which interestingly enough, they had to fire several children because they kept getting too old and they would walk instead of crawl. (laughs) So they had fire kids left and right. Yeah. TJ Kuhn is now a realtor in the Phoenix area. Wow. Okay. So this is a sad bit of trivia here that I just happen to know. Okay. The kid, when he's having his dream at the end of the movie and he's seeing one of those, he's seeing Nathan Jr. scoring touchdowns on the football kid who played that older Nathan Jr. was tragically murdered in like a street rage incident when he was only 23 years old. Really? Yeah. Oh man, that's terrible. Bummer. Okay. So casting on the Big Lebowski. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Now then, they got Jeff Bridges to play the dude. Yeah. Now, that I will tell you that they had John Goodman in mind for Walter the whole time. There's well, no question. Yeah, they worked with him many times before. They had Steve Buscemi the whole time in mind for Donnie. But they didn't know who they were going to have play the dude. Right. Top contender? Mel, Mel Gibson. Gibson. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. He didn't really take it seriously. Yeah. I don't think he quite got the gist of the character. He would have been wrong. I mean, I, I'm sure he has the acting chops to do it, but he would have been wrong. I mean, we're talking mid-90s. Yeah. This is Martin Riggs. This is Braveheart. Mel Gibson at the peak of his Hollywood powers. Yeah. I think Jeff Ridges did a awesome job, and they didn't need Mel Gibson for this. No. Jeff, I mean, Jeff, Jeff Ridges is a, is a force himself. I mean, but... I, I really props to him because he's frequently playing the handsome man, right? I mean, he's a good looking guy and is typically playing that part. And so he keeps himself in pretty good shape. But when he got the part and he met Jeff Dowd, he's like, oh, I can kind of let my waistline go for this. <laughs> and they said they didn't, the only direction that they needed to give him and that he would ask for is before each scene, he would go, so, guys, do you think that the dude burned one down on the way over to this scene? And they said most of the time the answer was yes. And so if the answer was yes, he'd go over the corner and rub his eyes really hard uh-huh. and then go and do the scene. Yeah, Jeff Bridges says he's basically playing himself from the 60s and 70s. Yeah. He can identify with this character, I think. Sure, yeah. <laughs> All right, so you mentioned John Goodman. Julianne Moore plays Maud Lebowski. Yes, she got this script while she was working on Jurassic Park, The Lost World. Yes. So glad that she did both because had she only done Jurassic Park, The Lost World, I don't know that her career would have been as successful as it was. Right. So her character was based on Yoko Ono and Carolee Schneeman. <laughs> yeah. Carolee Schneeman actually created art naked hanging from a string. I know. I Googled that right before we got started. I thought, this can't be right, is did, it? Did you find her work strongly vaginal? <laughs> Sorry, did that make you uncomfortable? <laughs> Word itself. Men find it hard to say. Vagina. Vagina. <laughs> oh my gosh. The Google pictures that I looked at, it was it's just so weird for me. You know, she's just swinging around, just making marks on the floor. Hey, to each their own. Yep. So but this is the one that really got me, okay? Yeah. So big Lebowski. Yeah. The big Jeff Lebowski, the yeah. older man, yeah. right? This is who they wanted for the role. Robert Duvall. Would have been great. Anthony Hopkins. Would have been great. He didn't want to play an American, which I think is strange because that's what we call acting. Yeah. Okay. Gene Hackman. Would have been great. Yeah. All these guys. George C. Scott. Would have been perfect. Yeah. 
Jerry Falwell. Wow, that's <laughs> weird. Okay. okay, stay with me. Andy Griffith. Okay, that was that would be odd. That and then odd. finally, Marlon Brando is the guy they really wanted, but uh, uh, his health wouldn't let him do it. Yeah. So they end up hiring David Huddleston. Yeah, which he I does know a great job. Blazing Saddles. Like immediately, I'm like, oh, there's the guy for Blazing Saddles. But yes, he's brilliant in this. Yeah, that yeah. is. He, he was in Blazing Saddles. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about Tara Reid for a second. Okay. Tara Reid in 1998. Yeah. She's bringing the heat. Yeah. This is before she went crazy. Blow on them. <laughs> you mean to blow on Yes, I can't blow that far. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Remember her? She had that TV show, Paradise, where she was in a reality show on VH1, and it was all about her just you, being praying. I did not watch Paradise. I didn't watch Paradise either, but it's, <laughs> I mean, she lost her mind in the 80s, in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. But she was, she was very young and beautiful and the perfect trophy wife back then. For the character of Bunny Lebowski, yeah. they wanted Charlize Theron. And, you know. Would have been a good choice. I mean, she. Would have been a good choice. Yeah. yeah. Interesting comparison of the two main female characters in this. You've got Maud, this headstrong, independent feminist and the trophy wife and infomaniac. Right. When I, and when you talk about Maud, when I'm watching her do those weird things <laughs> in bed, uh-huh. I'm like, what's she doing? And then I realize, oh, she's trying to get pregnant. Yep. Okay. And then, of course, you've got John Turturro as Jesus. By the way, Sam Elliott they had in mind the whole time. Of course. Now, Sam Elliott, you know, you've we've talked about this being a Raymond Chandler thing, and then you've got these unusual hippie character and Vietnam vet, bowling, and this random adventure. But the movie starts off with a tumbleweed, and the narration by the most southern drawl narrator that you can imagine, perfect voice, you're just like, what? Is this a Western? What is this right. here, right? Yeah. But it's this great comparison of... The dude and his anti-hero-ness and the standard American cowboy. And Sam Elliott didn't get it. It he, didn't matter. He's just got to say his lines and act like Sam Elliott. Just and act like the cowboy. But he's like, I really don't understand what I'm doing here, guys. <laughs> but he was there for two days. He shot his parts in two days. Two days. There you go. Sometimes you eat the bar. Sometimes the bar eats you. <laughs> okay. That's pretty much what I have for the cast. But I do have a nugget that I want to blow your mind with, okay? Yes, okay, I'm excited. Okay, so the Big Lebowski Mansion yes. is a famous filming spot in Beverly Hills. Okay. So it is a stand-in for a lot of, quote-unquote, rich people's homes in movies and stuff like that. Okay. okay. It's actually owned by the city of Beverly Hills. Oh, okay. okay? It's called Greystone Mansion. Okay. Okay. It's actually very, very close to the Playboy Mansion. It's like you can see it from the front lawn or whatever. Nice. That's perfect. Okay. So it has starred as the rich person's home in these movies. Okay. All of Me, Gold Member, Death Becomes Her, Ghostbusters 2, which we did with the guys at the Film By podcast. Yep. Which I'm trying to remember. I can't remember a mansion in Ghostbusters 2. I don't, I don't really remember that either. Maybe it's like where they were doing the artwork or something. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Indecent Proposal, Spider-Man 1, 2, and 3. You mentioned Sam Raimi. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. X-Men. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And these music videos. Okay. Brace yourself. Edge my C here. I'd Do Anything for Love by Meatloaf. Okay. <laughs> and a video that we've talked about before, 
Oh Pretty Woman by Van Halen was shot at the Greystone Mansion. Wow. The Van Halen video where the midgets are assaulting that woman (laughs) at the beginning of the video. That's awesome. The Big Lebowski Mansion. That's fantastic, man. That's great. Okay, so my only bit of trivia for this last little bit. Yeah. The car that was actually stolen that belonged to Peter X line that was found by Louis Abernathy was a Chrysler LeBaron, and that's what they wanted to use for the movie. But John Goodman was too big to fit inside of it, and so they had to use a Ford Torn. Oh, man. Dang. John's lost some weight since then. I'm sure he could fit inside the LeBaron at this point, but I just thought that was interesting. He was a big dude. He was a big dude. Okay, guys, that does it for the first part of our Raising Arizona versus the Big Lebowski episodes. Come back next week. We are going to talk to you about production itself. We're going to talk to you about composers and the music used in the movies and our final judgment on which of these two movies is the best Coen Brothers movies of the 80s and 90s. Come back next week.